Welcome to Michigan Opera Theater's Opera Here podcast. This is Arthur White and Andrea Scobie with Michigan Opera Theater. We are thrilled that you've joined us today as we preview a double bill of Giacomo Puccini's Gianni Schicchi and Michael Ching's Bozo's Ghost. This production marks the first time MOT has produced Bozo's Ghost and only the second production of Gianni Schicchi to be mounted in the company's 49-year history. On today's podcast, we'll tell you about the stories of both operas give you a bit about their histories, and we'll be joined by two special guests associated with the stage production, which opens Saturday, February 29th. But before we get started, we want to recognize and offer our sincere thanks to Jake Neer and WDET for their assistance in producing our Opera Here podcasts. Puccini's Gianni Schicchi is an Italian comedic opera, which centers around the crafty and cunning title character, a historical figure who's mentioned by Dante in his Divine Comedy. The opera is the third and final part of Puccini's Il Tritico, three one-act operas originally intended to be performed together in a single performance. It premiered at the Metropolitan Opera House in New York on December 14, 1918, and it was an immediate hit. The action opens in Florence in 1299 at the home of the wealthy Buozo Donati, who has just died. His family, including cousins, nephews, and in-laws, gather around to mourn his passing— but they are more interested in learning the contents of his will, and this begins a frantic and exhaustive search of the house. Bozo's nephew, Renuncio, locates the will, and as the relatives read it, they learn Bozo has bequeathed his fortune to the church. This news does not go over well, but suddenly it occurs to the family there might be a way around this will. Renuccio suggests the one person who can help them get around this will, legally or illegally, is Gianni Schicchi. Renuccio is advocating for Schicchi because he is in love with Schicchi's daughter, Lauretta, and he wants to marry her. The family is dead set against involving Schicchi because he is an immigrant from the peasant class who can't even offer a dowry for his daughter's hand. Renuccio defends Schicchi by telling the family they must open their minds to new ideas in his aria, Avete torto, you're mistaken. Johnny Schicchi and his daughter, Lauretta, now arrive at Renuccio's invitation, but they are told by the family they are not welcome and that they should just leave. Schicchi, angry and insulted at this treatment, attempts to leave with his daughter, but Lauretta stops him to make a final plea in her plaintive aria, O mio babino caro, O my dearest papa. Skiki, moved by his daughter's request, agrees to take a look at the will. Upon first look, Skiki tells them there is no way around this ironclad document, but an idea occurs to him. No one knows Bozo is dead, so why not legally dictate a new will? He establishes a plan. They will move Bozo's body to another room, and Skiki will take his place in the bed, disguised in Bozo's nightclothes and nightcap. They will dim the lights, and Skiki will mimic Bozo's voice and dictate a new will to the notary. He explains all of this in his aria, Si corre dal notaio, run to the notary.
The family is thrilled with Skiki's plan, and they begin their own scheming. Each approaches Skiki privately in order to bribe him to leave them Bozo's most valued possessions, his house, his mills, and his mule. Skiki quietly tells each one not to worry, that they will come out happy in the end. Before the notary arrives, Skiki explains to the family members the grave consequences of falsifying a will, banishment from Florence, and the loss of a hand. The notary arrives, and Skiki begins the dictation of the new will. He grants the family their minor requests, but when he gets to the house, the mills, and the mule, he leaves those to his devoted friend, Johnny Skiki. Furious, the family can say nothing in front of the lawyer without incriminating themselves in this scheme. But once the notary has left, the family shows their outrage. But Skiki kicks them all out of his new house. Now that Skiki has money, he can afford Lauretta's dowry, so she and Renuccio can marry. The two sing their love duet, Lauretta Mia. Moved by these words of love, Skiki turns to the audience and asks them if there could be any better use of Bozo's money as the curtain falls. And so that's the end of Johnny Skiki, but just the end of Act One for us. This is, of course, a double bill, um, so we'll have more on Bozo's Ghost in a minute. But I just love this plot of Skiki. I think it's so funny. It's so clever. Um, I can't wait to see it. Of course, it reminds me of Barbersville, which we did last season, the uh, cunning and crafty. He's, you know, uh, Skiki is always a step or two in front of, or ahead of everyone else. And so uh, it's quite fun. Kind of reminds you of the barber in that way. It certainly does. Now, in 1996, American composer Michael Ching, believing there should be a sequel to Puccini's Johnny Skiki, sat down and wrote the libretto and music to his own comedic opera in English, debuting his work at Opera Memphis on January 25th, 1997, nearly 80 years after the debut of Johnny Skiki. The action takes place two hours after the events in Gianni Skiki have ended. We first see Lauretta and Renuccio arm-in-arm planning their future. A proud Skiki looks on as the couple leave to buy their wedding rings. Skiki sits down to enjoy some food left behind by Bozo's family, but discovers the food and drink have been poisoned, which means Bozo was murdered. Skiki now hears the family approaching the house, and he scribbles a note and puts it in Bozo's nightshirt. The family arrives and accuses Skiki of murder. As tensions rise, but before violence ensues, the magistrate arrives to prosecute the case. Skiki defends himself vigorously and falls sobbing over Bozo's body. He pulls the note from Bozo's nightshirt and reads it aloud, stating that Bozo has committed suicide. I, Bozo Donati, have chosen to take my life by poison. The magistrate drops the case, and the family realizes they have been outsmarted by Skiki once again. Now, in a nod to the ending of Puccini's opera, Skiki comes downstage and asks the audience to forgive the upstart composer for writing this sequel.
That's such a great nod to Puccini's ending, the Skiki coming downstage again, addressing the audience again. It's just this this great dramatic callback um, it, to the original piece. It kind of brings the whole thing full circle. Yes. Know? This yeah. sort of breaking of the fourth wall right at the end. Definitely. There's some there's some uh, musical recognition in Bozo's Ghost of um, Puccini's writing. And so that dramatic recognition, too, I think is, uh, is just really funny and really clever. Right. And speaking of Michael Ching... We are so pleased to welcome our podcast guest, who's an American composer, conductor, and music administrator. He began his operatic career at the Houston Grand Opera Studio and went on to the Florida Grand Opera, Chautauqua Opera, Virginia Opera, Opera Memphis. He has been music director of the Amarillo Opera since 2016 and is on the board of directors of the National Opera Association. He is the composer and librettist of Bozo's Ghost. Please welcome Michael Ching. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Glad to be here. Can you tell us, what was your earliest association with uh, Skiki? Well, let me see. Probably in the um, early 90s, um, we got uh, the chance to try to do Johnny Skiki down at Opera Memphis when I was the uh, general director. But actually, there's one time before that. The very first time I heard Johnny Skiki, I was still in college. I was at Duke University, and uh, there was a, a production by a company called the National Opera Company, and they did it at a small theater um, in Durham, North Carolina. They did it with orchestra. And the one thing I remember that was really funny at the end of the show is that uh, while Johnny Skiki was giving his very final speech, he got upstaged by a cat. A cat walked onto the stage, and was it a black cat? <laughs> yeah, well, it wasn't a black cat, but it was a very, you know, it was an upstaging cat. I mean, and, and any kind of animal that you put on stage upstages any person. And so the Johnny Skiki was kind of wondering what to do with it, and he kind of kicked at the cat, and the cat just kind of wandered around, and then finally he wandered off the stage. So um, anyway, um, that, I think that was my first exposure to Skiki. But when we were planning on doing it at Opera Memphis. You know, Opera Memphis was a middle-sized uh, regional opera company, not as big as the Michigan Opera Theater. And we were trying to figure out, well, what to do with it. Um, and, you know, when you put on one of the other pieces of the Tritico, you know, only the biggest, biggest, biggest opera companies uh, for a very special occasions put on all three of those operas at the same time. It's just like putting on three grand operas because they require three different sets. Uh, a lot of uh, the different casts even to some degree Certainly. and they're very hard to put on. And so for a smaller opera company like Opera Memphis, we were like, well, what can we do? How can we, how can we do this? And the idea of a sequel came up and it was partly due to the fact that uh, we were doing joint auditions with the opera company in Chautauqua at Miami at the time. And so we'd be sitting around at breakfast, usually, you know, doing the usual kind of shooting the breeze about opera. And the whole subject came up about what happens to opera characters after the opera is over. You know, what happens to, um, I don't know, um, uh, uh, Lieutenant Pinkerton's marriage in Madame Butterfly. Mm. How does that go? Mm. You know, is it, right. is it, is it a mess? Uh, what happens to uh, in La Traviata to... Uh, Alfredo and his father. I mean, do they get along after Violetta dies, or is it just a, you know a bad scene? And right. so, and then we were talking about the the Skiki, and you know what happens to this to this to the Skiki family or whatever. And we came up with this idea that maybe the Skiki family really murdered Uncle Blozo 
by, uh, I mean, uh, sorry, the, 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 the Donati family, not the Skiki family, but the Donati family mm-hmm. um, poisoned Uncle Bozo. And that became the premise of this uh, sequel, Bozo's Ghost. Did you feel any pressure to continue the sequel in Italian, or was it always in your mind going to be in English? Oh, no. We never, we never thought we would do it in Italian, and it switches to English. Um, I don't remember. Is your production, your first production, the Skiki is going to be in Italian, and then the Bozo will be in English, or will you do both of the operas in English? They'll be in English. Mean in Italian, I'm sorry. Yes, yeah, so yeah the Italian. first will be in Italian. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. yeah, I don't think the audience will find, find that too too difficult uh, to make that switch. But uh, that, that's a very, that's a fairly common question, Arthur, that uh, people ask American opera composers. It's like, do you write operas in English? Because um, people have this stereotype that operas are in, I don't know, uh, definitely Italian, but perhaps French or German. Yeah. And so, yes, this opera is definitely going to be in English. Oh, very good. <laughs> yeah. So I guess, you know, here at Michigan Opera Theater, we had our, our founder, Dr. David DiChiara, who did his Cyrano, but he actually decided to write that in French. And so, you know, yeah. I guess we're used to it being any kind of language. Yeah. Exactly. Now, as you were um, tossing around this idea of this uh, this sequel, was there a story that you pulled from to create Bozo's Ghost? Was there, um, you know, any piece of, a, you know, Italian or other writing or was this entirely invented? Was this all your idea? No, it was pretty much an act of imagination. I mean, we did a certain amount of research uh, about the government or the general structure of what was going on in um, uh, Florence at the time, and that uh, it was perfectly possible that there might have been a this kind of a, a, a magistrate that they could have called to have make a made a legal decision. And it was a it was a little I don't know. You maybe could, could, could compare it to the Wild West in the sense that there was a very loose kind of government uh, there at the time. You know, musically, I was going to ask you. Um, there are echoes of Puccini within Bozo's Ghost, but um, I also know that there are sounds of Sondheim, as you just mentioned, some Mozart. Um, I've even heard uh, some here American pop uh, sprinkled throughout the score. Can you talk a little bit about the musical landscape of the piece? Yes, um, it was very important for there to be some quotations of Puccini in the uh, the sequel. And uh, there's no, a musicologist would have a field day because it is not just um, uh, um, Johnny Skeeky. There, there is uh, Madame Butterfly in there. There is um, a very famous uh, piece called Suicidio from uh, Ponchielli's La Gioconda that is quoted in there. Because um, I'm, I'm, I'm part of the tribe. I mean, I'm, I'm a member of the opera tribe. I am not a, a composer who comes to opera late. I mean, I've been a coach, a conductor, a chorus master, assistant conductor, all those things, a producer. And so I, I don't want to say I know opera, you know, intimately, but I do know it very well. And so a lot of those kinds of things are in there. Now, as far as the American musical languages go, um, I think humor is built on anachronism does that make does that uh, statement make sense um you know uh, when you hear something that doesn't feel like it belongs then it's kind of funny um and so some of the ways the jokes are built is that there's this this kind of um i don't know acapella gospel sound to part of uh uh, ghost Uh, there are things that may sound like uh, uh prokofiev or shostakovich uh, there are pieces that sound like, oh, uh, I don't know, uh, Carlisle Floyd, one of my teachers, 
Um, and so there's a there's a deliberately eclectic musical language for me. I'm I really enjoy writing eclectically, and theater writing gives you that chance to do that because you can just I don't know flop around or move around to whatever style that feels right for the particular dramatic moment. I was going to tell you a smile did come to my face when the La Gioconda moment happens uh, toward the end. Good it's for very you. Funny. Yeah. Very funny. <laughs> you know, I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about your early years in music and your formative experience because among your many travels, you have a Michigan connection as well. Um, I know you spent some time at Interlochen um, when yes. you were starting yes. out. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that experience and uh, your early yes. compositions and your it, early music? It was really important to me to go to Interlochen. I went to two, Interlochen for two summers as a high school boy and uh, I think it's that first First summer, uh, I took a beginning composition class after not having written any uh, music since, you know, since I wrote a few small pieces when I was eight or nine. And then I went there that first summer and took a composition class. And I think I must have written, uh, I don't know, a couple pounds of music. I don't know what the, the best way to describe it. I mean, a lot of it was a lot of scribbling and a lot of uh, music. And the composition teacher said to me and I mean, my parents just like, hey, you know, I'm really interested in this. Um, and so I started taking uh, composition lessons back home in Minnesota and then ended up going to uh, Duke University in North Carolina, which is a very unlikely place for a musician to go. Frankly, I kind of secretly think that my, my parents secretly wanted me to get the music out of my system and become a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. Um, but it didn't work because the music at Duke uh, was quite rich. Um, they had one... They pretty much took one student composer every year, and the faculty or and the student body just played everything you wrote. Um, and so it, for a student composer, that's actually how you learn. And my last project, which was under the supervision of my teacher at the time, uh, Robert Ward, who's the composer of the very famous American opera, The Crucible, uh, my last project in college was a one-act opera, which we got to put on. And um, I got uh, very lucky and ended up right after my undergraduate uh, years with a fellowship to train further uh, with Carlisle Floyd, the uh, well-known American opera composer of Susanna and of Mice and Men. And I got to work with him for a year while I was training at the Houston Grand Opera. And after that, just, just stayed in the business and ended up writing, uh, I mean, running Opera Memphis from 1992 to uh uh, 2010. I mean, I saw uh, Dr. D at, you know, Opera America board meetings and things like that. And, uh, but finally in 2010, uh, my wife got the opportunity to become the chair of the, of a big English department at the Iowa State University. And uh, she's from Iowa. And since then, I've really been able to be a full-time composer. I want to thank Michael Ching so much for being here. It was a thrill having you as our podcast guest. We can't wait for the production to open. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. I've enjoyed talking to you both. It's so amazing to think of writing a sequel to something nearly 80 years after the fact, but I think if anyone could inspire that level of fascination, it's definitely Puccini. Um, Arthur, can you tell us about this much-beloved composer? Well, you know, Puccini is considered the most important Italian opera composer after Giuseppe Verdi. Critics at the time called him the successor to Verdi, who would premiere his final opera, Falstaff, just seven days later. 
Puccini cements his place in operatic history with his next three operas, La Boheme, Tosca, and Madama Butterfly. Now, OperaBase.com, which tracks worldwide performances of opera, lists these three operas in the top ten most frequently performed operas today. Now, this trifecta of opera makes Puccini a very wealthy man, but it also establishes him as an important voice of the 19th century romantic Italian opera style. He helps carry opera into the modern era with his contribution to the realistic or verismo style, which was now the standard. After the success of Mascagni's opera Cavalleria Rusticana, the one-act operas became quite popular, and Puccini began to hunt for appropriate subjects. He came up with three one-act operas to be performed in order, all in one evening, entitled Il Tritico. They include Il Tabaro, The Cloak, about a man who discovers his wife is having an affair and he kills her lover. Swor Angelica, about a woman who is sent to the convent after giving birth to a child out of wedlock. And of course, the comedy we're talking about today, Johnny Skiki. At the premiere in New York in 1918, critics hailed Skiki, specifically the aria O Mio Babino Caro, but were quite unenthusiastic about Il Tabaro and Swor Angelica. At the Rome premiere the following year, famed conductor Arturo Toscanini, who conducted several premieres of Puccini's operas, was dissatisfied with Il Tabaro and walked out of the performance. This caused a rift with Puccini, and he replaced Toscanini as the conductor of the London premiere, thus ending their relationship. However, four years later, when Toscanini conducted a revival of Manon Lescaux at La Scala, the two men reconciled. This would prove vital because a few months later in 1924, Puccini is diagnosed with throat cancer before having completed his final opera, Turandot. Shortly before his death on November 29th of that year, he met with Toscanini and begged him not to let Turandot die. It was Toscanini who pushes the completion of the opera by Alfano, and he conducts the premiere of Turandot himself on April 25, 1926. We might have lost one of Puccini's masterpieces forever had it not been for Arturo Toscanini. Arthur, what are you most looking forward to about this double bill? I'm excited not only because we return back to Puccini, which, of course, I love. Puccini uh, is one of my favorite composers, but also because of Michael Ching's piece. Uh, he spoke earlier in our interview about sort of incorporating all these different styles uh, and even these particular operatic moments. He talked about La Gioconda, which is an hysterical moment. So for those opera, big opera lovers, you will see all these things sort of pop out. So that's very, very exciting. It's also what I like about it is uh, it's very tuneful. But it also is very direct. It's, it's you know, it, the, the, the story doesn't really hang or, or, you know, it's constantly in motion. You're constantly moving ahead. Uh, you constantly, if you, you know, could miss a line. So you have to really be uh, in tune to what's happening on the stage. Uh, and this is very, very, very funny. And of course, as we talked about before, you know, breaking the fourth wall is, uh, is always hysterically funny, especially the way I've seen it uh, stage. So I'm just curious to see how we are going to stage it. I know it's going to be something that's probably going to be unique and uh, probably a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely excited about uh, the comedic aspect of this. I think, um, you know, when we think Puccini, we think these grand, very dramatic operas, most of which uh, don't end happily at all. Um, I, I think I read uh, somewhere saying, you know, so many operas uh, end with a death, but uh, Gianni's Kiki starts with one. That's, um, that's right. And, uh, you know, but in a funny way, I mean, I only mentioned that comment to say that uh, everything about this is kind of funny and different for opera, for Puccini, certainly. Um, and I'm just really glad that we'll have the chance to have this, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, lighter, 
comedic night out at the opera. Yeah, and it's kind of funny, you know, in difference, you know, we so often have, you know, death and tragedy and suffering. So it is fun to have something comedic. But even unlike Barbara of Seville, you know, Bozo's body, you have this dead body sort of stay, sitting on stage <laughs> oh, no. for a good po- portion of the time. So it's kind of a dark you know, comedy. Oh, uh, we'll follow also, up Sweeney Todd in excellent fashion, right? exactly. Right? <laughs> so, you know, he kind of started that, these kind of dark comedies. You know, you don't really see it. Usually it's either very comedic uh, or not, or very serious. And so to kind of have this kind of walk between two worlds and this kind of dark farce is uh, is a lot of fun. I love that. New and different. Um, and I'm also really excited uh, that this production will star members of the Michigan Opera Theater Studio. Michigan Opera Theater Studio artists represent some of the most exciting, emerging talent in opera today. Um, supported by a major grant from the William Davidson Foundation, uh, MOT studio artists come to Detroit from all over the country. They spend one to two seasons with MOT taking roles in our main stage productions, giving performances in the community, and of course taking the lead roles in one opera each year, this season uh, being Gianni Skiki and Bozo's Ghost. Throughout their residency, the studio artists are able to um, have individual training. They take part in master classes and instruction from a wide variety of world-class professionals like Renee Fleming and Martin Katz. And they have the opportunity to work closely with MOT's Director of Resident Artist Programs, the celebrated American tenor Richard Leach, who runs the MOT studio. The studio is now in its fifth year, and alumni have gone on to make debuts at the Metropolitan Opera, at Carnegie Hall, at Lincoln Center. Um, they've originated roles in new operas with some of the most illustrious composers working today, like Ricky Ian Gordon and Janine Tesori. Um, and we are always so excited to see them on stage at MOT and then to see uh, where their careers take them next um, after they leave us. No doubt. Now, in 2015, MOT invited celebrated tenor Richard Leach to head the studio resident artist program. Now, he hails from New York. Uh, He rose to the top of the opera field, singing leading tenor roles in all of the major opera houses of the world. He made his Metropolitan Opera debut in 1989 as Rodolfo in La Boheme and remained with the company almost 25 years, singing over 175 performances. His love, knowledge, understanding, and know-how of the opera field have been invaluable to our young artists as they work and strive to have important careers in opera. Here to talk to us a bit about the Michigan Opera Theater Studio artists and their production of Johnny Skiki and Buozo's Ghost, welcome operatic royalty Mr. Richard Leach. Thank you for being here, Richard. Good afternoon. It's so nice to be uh, speaking with you, Arthur. I think I need to hire you as my new publicist. (laughs) Wonderful. (laughs) It'd be a perfect job for him. Uh, Now, Rick, you grew up in Binghamton, New York. Um, As Arthur mentioned, your father was an engineer for IBM. Uh, How did you come to music? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I... other than listening to some Mario Lanza that records that my dad had, I was never oriented toward opera at all until um, a junior high teacher said, kid, you should be taking voice lessons. And we happened to be neighbors and friends with the president of the board of Tri-Cities Opera here in Binghamton, New York. And uh, I ended up going and having a lesson with Carmen Savoca, one of the founders of the company, and the teacher uh, who said, we don't teach children. And uh, but he ended up taking me as a student, and uh, thus began the the story. Tri Cities Opera was a unique company founded in '49 by these two gentlemen, Carmen Savoca and Peyton Hibbett, who were the teachers and the, the the stage director and the conductor of this company that had a workshop of up to 30 people at any given time, 30 singers, both amateur and young professionals. They would come to Binghamton and study with them, be in the productions. And so I grew up on that stage from the time I was about 15. 
So, well, Richard, so so Tri-Cities Opera really was your young artist program. It really was. It was a time when there were very few uh, young artist programs as we know them today. There was the Adler Fellowship Program in San Francisco. Houston's has been around for a, a good long time, their young artist uh, program. But uh, today um, they are everywhere. I mean, most companies have some kind of young artist program. And it's sort of the obligatory obligatory stop after a master's program, if you will, after university, to go then be a young artist with a with a company or two along the way. That didn't exist in my time, and Tri-Cities was this unique um, oasis of just nurturing environment. We had classes, we had workshop classes, what you might call master classes, I suppose, as many as three times a week. They did three major productions a year. They did excerpt shows in between, and you're studying with these two amazing mentors and teachers. Uh, really quite an amazing and unique uh, set up, particularly in the United States. So it almost sounds like they were kind of uh, pioneers of that, because that's similar to what young artists today receive in programs, correct? That's that kind exactly of mentorship. right. Yeah. And they actually were pioneers also. Ultimately, around the time I began in earnest, they also then um, sort of pioneered and, and were one of the first masters in music and opera programs. They connected with SUNY Binghamton, now Binghamton University, creating a master's in music and opera that was half duty at the opera and half at the university. How did you end up in Detroit? How did we snag you uh, from New York uh, to here come to Detroit to head this program? Yeah, it's interesting. I never planned on, even though I had a success in a career that, that was probably wildly beyond my own imaginings, I just really was so lucky to be able to sing the repertoire I wanted in the great opera houses of the world. Um, and so... While I was still at the Met, approaching my 60s, I said, you know what, I, I know that I want to, to move on. I, I don't want to do this forever. I've already done it for 30, 35 years, uh, traveling the world 10 months, uh, 10 months a year on the road. And it's uh, pretty demanding, as you might imagine. Um, I began teaching uh, both privately and at Rutgers University to sort of begin a transition uh, ultimately, I knew I really wanted to work with an opera company because that's where I <clears throat> sort of lived my life. I was at home the second I walked into any theater in the world. Uh, so as I was at Rutgers, uh, about that time, about the third year I was teaching there, still singing at the Met, um, I was beginning to look at full-time positions and what might that be. And Michigan Opera Theater and David DiCaro did a search for someone to start this young young artist program uh, for Michigan Opera Theater, I uh, immediately reached out. It was it was just sort of one of those moments in time when it was right for them and right for me, and the perfect solution. Wow! Now you're five years into the program. Is the program what you figured it would be, or where we are today? Very much so in in many respects. It's uh, David was amazing, and and Wayne Brown as well in in their support of um, designing it in a way that I saw as necessary for what does a young singer need? What, what, what are those requirements? Often a young artist program can include a lot of duties that are not necessarily the best thing for their development or that stage in their career, whether it's singing in chorus or doing educational outreach shows um, and other things. They also need time and uh, 
serious focus on the repertoire that they're working on, as well as performance opportunity. So I was given the wonderful mandate of giving these artists what they needed. <laughs> and that includes coaching by incredible clinicians and, and artists that come through things such as languages, et cetera, that we support, but also just as much time in the studio coaching and and studying, if you will, as as they can stand, basically. They're not hoping to get more time because it's there. Yeah. There are five young artists who come to sing uh, as part of the MOT studio each year, but you hear and literally audition hundreds of singers uh, for these five roles. Um, what is it that you're looking for in the select five who get to sing in the studio? It's really one of the most important and challenging aspects of running a program like this. Um, as you can imagine, um, there's been, as you may know, there's been a proliferation of of opera programs, of voice programs in universities across the country. Many, many wonderful ones. And as a result, singers are coming out the other end of that pipeline with great regularity and large numbers, uh, all looking for that next step. And we vet hundreds and hundreds of applications with videos and resumes and select roughly 70 or 70 to 80 that we offer auditions to. And then from that, whittle it down to sort of finalists and fill the very small number of positions that we might have. It can be as few as two or three from the, the, in, the in that process in that season. So it's really a quite, quite a remarkable and, and lengthy, detailed process. Wow. Can you talk about the current crop of five singers and what we're expected to see and hear with uh, Skiki and uh, Bozo's Ghost? Well, one of the reasons we're doing Bozo's Ghost is because we were able to wait just long enough to set this year's studio artist production, which is Bozo's Ghost and, and Johnny Skiki, till we already knew who our singers were going to be. And it's a real luxury. It's, not, it's often not the case. It's sort of cart before the horse sometimes. But as a result of knowing our, knowing these singers, um, I really have wanted to give an opportunity to do standard repertoire, if you will, real operatic masterpiece opportunity for these artists. And because we had this baritone, Darren Drone, the part of Johnny Skiki is very demanding, very Puccini in its in its scale. Even though it's a one act opera, it requires that incredible sort of maturity of sound and ability to sing, as well as the, the roles of Lauretta and Rinuccio, the, the soprano and the tenor. We had this perfect cast, in addition to the other cast, because it's a wonderful ensemble piece. We had the perfect elements in place. And so for me, it was a, a no-brainer. Immediately went to Wayne and said, please, let's do, let's do Johnny Skiki. It's, it's a rare moment in time when we have exactly the right people. Well, Richard Leach, thank you so much for your leadership and your example, and thanks for being our guest today. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the, taking the moment to talk to me. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening today to our glimpse into Gianni Skiki and Bozo's Ghost. We hope to see you at the production running Saturday, February 29th, and Sunday, March 1st at the Macomb Center for the Performing Arts. To purchase tickets for this production or to find more information about the operas, 
visit our website at michiganopera.org. You can also connect with us on social media. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again to Jake Neer and WDET for their assistance in producing this podcast, and we'll see you at the opera. <laughs>